Oh God, one life lived millennia ago. How shall we in this third millennium so live? As we begin this journey and remember, teach us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. He grew up in a home crazier and more conflicted than Downton Abbey's stuffy English elite. His oldest brother slept with his father's third wife. Another brother slept unwittingly with his own daughter-in-law. And when his sister got raped, two of his other brothers were so enraged that they not only killed the rapist, they murdered every single male in that small rural village. Well, even his own mother, God bless her, sold the rights to sleeping with his father to his stepmother. And his father, a master at conniving deceit, cheated his way into the possession of Downton Abbey's estate itself. The family's a mess, dysfunctional, with a capital D-Y-S. Dis. I had a young co-ed in my office, in tears. What's up? I asked. She told me my fiancé has just announced to me that he's gay. I had a young man in my office, in tears. What's up? I asked. He tells me. I just had an affair with a married student, and I'm in a heap of trouble. I had a mother in my office, in tears. What's up, mother? She told me our youngest son has run away from home, and he says he's never coming back again. I suppose that if it weren't for broken relationships, the church would be put out of existence. And maybe not only the church, maybe the headcount in our hospitals and our psychiatric wards could be cut in half were it not for broken relationships. Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, that's the title Andrew Lloyd Webber gave his smashing Broadway musical. It's the title we're borrowing, only we're adding a second line to it, How to Heal Our Deepest Relationships. Because if it weren't for broken relationships, we wouldn't even be here. Right here in chapter 37 of the book of Genesis, the very beginning of one of the greatest, most well-known and well-loved stories in all of Scripture. And what better time to return to that story than in this season of springtime when love is in the air. Genesis chapter 37. Go there with me, please. Genesis 37 as we plunge into a new mini-series in the springtime at Andrews University in the Pioneer Memorial Church. Genesis 37, we'll pick it up in verse 2. I'll be in the NIV in this series. Any Bible translation you have is fine by me. If you don't have a Bible, grab the pew Bible in front of you. You'll see a page number there, 26. Let's go. 
Genesis chapter 37, verse 2, I'm in the NIV. That's what we'll be in for this short mini-series in springtime. You can bring any translation you want, but let's go. Verse 2, this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17. Wait a minute. Can you remember when you were 17? I mean, please. Some of you are just a year away. I want to tell you something. You are in for the most wonderful year of your life, 17, so innocent, so young, so possible, so full of promise. Don't they have a magazine called 17? All right. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. Now, dad has two more wives. That would be Leah and Rachel, the sisters. And he, Joseph, brought their father a bad report about them. Now, our first response inclination here is in this first act of the drama of Joseph, you know what? The boy is just a tattletale. I'm going to tell daddy on you. We always conclude that. But I want you to think for a moment. Charles, uh, Carlisle B. Haynes in his masterful retelling of the story of Joseph. And I love this. He points out the scholarship, in fact, scholarship, in fact, is, is of the conviction that Joseph has been assigned as supervisor. He is required to report. Let me put uh, Carlisle B. Haynes on the screen for you. It was foolish of his father Jacob to place Joseph in a post of superintendency, but being in that place made Joseph responsible to their father for an account of their behavior. You know what we're going to discover in this unfolding story about this 17-year-old? We're going to find out that everywhere he shows up, he moves to the top. Shows up amongst his brothers, he's at the top. Shows up as a slave, he's to the top. Shows up in prison, he's at the top. Shows up in the empire of Egypt, he's at the top. Everywhere the boy goes. It's not that he's just the son of daddy's favorite wife. Papa knows he's got an inborn leader, and he's been made by Papa to be that leader. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age, and he made him an ornate robe. There it is, Joseph's amazing technicolor dream coat. That's it. Huge confusion, by the way, with the Hebrew as to how those two very conflicted words should be translated so that here in the NIV you have an ornate robe. But the New Revised Standard comes along and says, no, 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 that's a long robe with sleeves. And then the New American Standard Bible comes along and says, no, 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 that's a very colored, V-A-R-I, a very colored robe. And then you have the old King James, a coat of many colors. Those of us that grew up with the story, that's the line we grew up with, a coat of many colors. You can imagine that coat almost like this, like this rainbow-colored tunic that stands out, flashing neon light in the midst of all this drab, dark garb of rural shepherds. That's Joseph. Speaking of the coat, let's go one more time to Carlisle B. Haynes. Put him on the screen. It was such a robe as worn only by the opulent and the noble, by king's sons and particularly by those who had no need to toil for their living. In short, it was the garment of a prince. Wow. Keep reading. It was given to Joseph for the purpose of marking his superiority, of making a distinction between him and his more rude brothers. No wonder they bore a grudge against him. I mean, can you believe it? It's obvious who daddy has picked to be the inheritor of this Downton Abbey estate. And they hated him for it. Hated him. His guts. But unbeknown to all, this is what's so amazing. Unbeknown to all, God has led father in making that very choice for God's master plan. 
Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, could not speak a kind word to him. And so here we go now. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said, hey, listen, fellas, i got to tell you this dream. Verse 7, we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf arose and stood up while all your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Not exactly your most strategic plan to win friends and influence people. You can't believe it. Well, why would you have to tell that dream? Guess what? He not only has one dream, he has another dream. Here comes the other dream, verse 8. First, first you get the brother's reaction. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? Oh, bros, you will remember those words one day. And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. Now, verse 9, then he had another dream. Uh-oh. And he told it. Told it to his brothers again. Hey, listen, guys, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you've had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? Verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. There's something unusual about this boy of mine. So sometime later, the brothers decide we've got to have more pasturage. And so they pack up their goods and head out with all that bleating, noisy flock trailing behind. Days go by. Weeks go by. Finally, Joe, come here. I've got to know how it's going with your brothers. We haven't heard a word from them. Would you mind taking some of mother's home-cooked delicacies, their favorites, go find them for me, and then bring back a word to me. How are the boys doing? Yes, Father, I'll go. And so it is. And so it is that Joseph leaves. Oh, Father Jacob. Jacob, Jacob, hold it, hold it, hold it. Jacob, as wise as your difficult life has made you, was this really a smart idea to send your beloved to the, to the boys who can't stand his guts? Papa, hold him, hold him, Papa, around his shoulders, look into that beautiful face. You will not see that face again for many, many, many years, yea, even a quarter of a century. Kiss him, hold him, he's gone. And the brothers... When they spot that blinking neon light of Joseph's amazing technicolor dream coat in the distance, something snapped. The hatred was palpable. And before Joseph can even arrive at the outskirts of their camp, they have already signed his death warrant. And if Reuben, older brother Reuben, if Reuben had not stepped in, they would have slaughtered him on the spot. And trust me, the boys are capable. They have done it before. Reuben says, hey, come on, guys, please. I mean, let's, let's not get any blood. It's kind of messy. Let's just put him in a pit. He'll starve to death, and the dreams will be over with the intention in the middle of the night, shh, Joseph, let's go and send the boy packing home. But the dreams will not come true if Joseph is dead. And the God of those dreams knows there must be a plan B, and I'll plant it in Judah's mind. And Judah's plan B, as it turns out, is God's plan A from the very beginning. 
Some of you are in a plan B now. You're absolutely sure it's a, you're absolutely sure it's a B or a C or a D. I'm telling you what, it may feel like a plan D to you, but could it be that it is God's plan A for you from the very beginning? Don't let go of that dream. So the boys sit down. What is this, verse 25? And as they sat down, Joseph's in the pit. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And that's when Judah jumped up. He said, guys, I got it. Let's forget it. Forget it. Let's not, come, let's not let him die here. Let's just sell him. We will sell him to these traders. The dreams finish forever. We'll be rid of him. Let's do it. And the boy said, sold. 19, 20, 20 pieces of silver. And Joseph, I mean, can you believe that? For their own flesh and blood, 20 pieces of silver. How do you suppose Joseph responded? Moses keeps this absolutely sterile. There is no emotion woven in. You know why? Because Moses has the ace in his hand, and he will play that card at a critical moment later. But let's go to later right now. Genesis chapter 42. The brothers are in Egypt. A quarter century has gone by. There's a gruff governor who, will, who refuses to cut them any slack. They don't know he can read and understand their conversation. Here's the conversation. So they say in the presence of the governor to one another in their own native tongue, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Oh, the gut-wrenching heartache in that single line when he pleaded with us for his life. Do you suppose 17-year-olds cry? Are you kidding? He is sobbing. He's at their feet. I beg you. I beg you. Don't. Don't sell me. Please. I'll go home. I'll not say a word. I'll get out of your life. Yeah. Verse 31. Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. And they took the ornate robe back to their father. And they said, yo, dad, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. Not our brother's robe. No, 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 no. Is this your son's robe? The bloody coat. And how to heal our deepest relationships. Because what we've just relived for a moment is not simply the story of Joseph. We have just read a portion of the life of Jesus. We just read it. Embedded in these few verses, seven stunning parallels between Jesus and Joseph. In fact, here's the deal. Grab your study guide because we're going to jot these down real quick. Here's the deal. Over the next few weeks, this is a very short mini-series, but here's, here's my invitation. Why don't you worship in the early mornings, why don't you worship out of Joseph, just a little episode a day, and start tracking how many of these parallels between the life of Jesus and the life of Joseph you can find. I'm going to give you a hint. I've already found, I just finished it, I've already found 25. If you find 26 and you have them documented, we're going to give you a free tablet. Somebody's going to donate it. It's Chaplain Jose who will donate it. 
and we're going to give you a free tablet. Okay? But you got to write them down. Don't you just come to me and say, hey, Dwight, I found 26. Where's the proof? Show me. All right. Here are seven of them. Here are seven in this opening salvo, this first dramatic chapter of Joseph. Let's go. Jot them down. Come on. You got your study guide? Got them? Let's go. No fanfare now. Parallels between Joseph and Jesus. Here we go. They are both the beloved son. Jot that down. Now, our ushers are coming your way, but it's, we're going to keep going. Both of them are the beloved son. We know that Joseph is the beloved son. Guess what? Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, the other father, what does he say? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. They are both the beloved son. Jot this down, number two. They are both the exalted son. Everybody bows down to Joseph in his dreams. But in Philippians chapter 2, the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They are both the exalted son. Number Number three, they are both the obedient son. Hey, Joe, will you go? Yes, Dad, I will. Hebrews chapter 10, quoting Psalm 40, tells us, puts these words into Christ, Christ upon Christ's lips, I delight to do your will, O oh my God, your law is within my heart. They are both the obedient son. Keep writing. They are both the hated son. We know about Joseph. Just before Jesus dies, to let the leadership know he knows that the, uh, the, the, the gig is up. Jesus tells a story. He said, I want to tell you a story about a vineyard. The owner's, owner's gone. He hired it out to tenants. When time came for harvest, he started sending those servants. Give me, I'm ready for the harvest. They killed the servants. They killed the servants. They killed the servants. Finally, the owner says, I'm going, to send, I'm going to send my boy. They will respect my boy. And when the tenants see the boy coming, they say to themselves, a direct quote, this is the heir of the estate. Let's kill him, and we have it. They are both the hated son. Keep writing. They are both the related son. Yep, both of them related to Judah. In fact, in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah now is a key player through the rest of salvation history. After that nefarious deed, apparently your life can be so messed up that you you have this kind of a moral meltdown, apparently God is not finished with you yet. He can snatch that life and rewrite your story so that you become a hero in heaven's strategy. How do you like that? Judah's the one who said, let's sell him. Number six, they are both the betrayed son. 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites, 30 pieces of silver to Judas. Number seven, final stunning parallel. They are both the slain son. Worthy is the lamb. Thank you, Matthew. Worthy, our singers today, thank you. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. You say, oh, come on, Dwight. Joseph wasn't slain. Are you, are you serious? Tell that to his daddy who sobs over the robe dipped in blood. Seven stunning parallels, and there are more where these came from. Keep track of them. No wonder patriarchs and prophets declare, as I put it on the screen for you, the life of Joseph illustrates the life of Christ. Joseph, through his bondage in Egypt, became a little as savior to his father's family. Amazing. Keep your pen moving. For only the savior has a robe dipped in blood. Only the savior gets a robe dipped in blood. You say, is that true of Jesus? Come on. Revelation 19, verse 13, this dynamic portrayal of Jesus returning soon to earth as the king of kings. How is he depicted? Jot it down. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. The identical language of Joseph 
Jesus returns in a robe dipped in blood. Why? Because you're the Savior. Isaiah 53, 6, we know these ancient words. By the Messiah's wounds, the bloody wounds, we are healed. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, quoting Isaiah 53, Peter writes, He himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins. Whose sins? My sins and yours. Bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, there it is, you have been healed. But before I sit down, I need you to look up one verse. Just look up one verse. The end of the Bible, 1 John. Take a look at this. Unbelievable. 1 John. Near the end, just before the book of Revelation, 1 John. Look at chapter 1. 1 John 1. Not putting it on the screen. 1 John chapter 1. I want you to take a look at this. Can you believe this? Wow. 1 John chapter 1. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. What are those last two words? From what? From what? From all sin. You're talking, you say, hey, Dwight, what, what kind of sin gets covered by that blood? The raw sin that comes to your mind right now when you're thinking of your own sins that you struggle over. The raw sin in the gut of your life. That sin gets cleansed, washed clean when you bring that sin to Jesus. Oh, I could be. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's the teeniest, tiniest, smallest little sin that you can just laugh away at. That doesn't even count. Boop, gone. It's not gone, and that little teeny tiny sin will kill you, just like one microbe of cancer will kill you if it's not dealt with. The blood of His Son cleanses us from all sin. Every sin that I brought to church today, He washes it clean. Hey guys, it's spring cleaning. It's spring. Time for cleaning. Every sin you and I have today can get washed right now. Wow. A robe dipped in blood, a heart broken by sin. What's the point? Jot it down and never forget it. The healing always begins with the blood. The healing always begins with the blood. Because we can find healing for our relationships only as we experience healing for ourselves. No healing for my heart. I don't care how many confangled relationships you're struggling with right now. There will be no healing for those until your own heart is healed. The healing has to begin here. And the healing always begins with blood. Every man, every woman, every young adult, every teenager who's wrestling, struggling with a relationship that has gone south at 1,000 miles an hour... Every one of us with broken relationships, the healing has to start here. Until I am forgiven here, until the mercy and love and the blood of Christ deal with me here, I'm not forgiven there. I have to find the healing here first. Once I'm healed here, then the relationships that we cherish the most, the deepest relationships. What are we going to be talking about in this brief miniseries, Dwight? Well, I'll tell you about it. We're talking about relationships between lovers, between spouses, between parents and children, between friends and colleagues and enemies, every relationship you can think of, the healing always begins with the blood. No blood, no healing. Oh, you can, tap, you, you, you can patch a few Band-Aids around it. You don't have healing. You have masking tape. The healing always begins with the blood. In a robe dipped 
with the blood. And that is the good news of the gospel truth. Let me end with these words of Frederick Beekner. Powerful. I'll put them on the screen for you. Turn around and believe that the good news that we are loved is gooder, that's his word, is gooder than we ever dared hope. And that to believe in that good news, to live out of it and toward it, to be in love with the good news is of all glad things in this world the gladdest of all. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, God, gooder news than this there cannot be. The gladdest news of all, no matter how dark and crippling my past, my sins, springtime, spring cleaning, and the raw sin I hide can be cleansed. This broken heart can be healed, and I can live life all over again with hope and joy and peace. And so we come to the truth that the healing always begins with the blood. Let it begin with us right now through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I take an extra moment with you and let you know how grateful I am that you joined us in worship today. I hear from viewers like you across the nation and literally around the world, and I'm thankful. If you'd like to explore further what we've just shared, I hope you'll visit us at our website. It's an easy one to remember, www.pmchurch.tv. We're the Pioneer Memorial Church here on the campus of Andrews University. So that's www.pmchurch.tv. Click onto that website and you'll be able to listen to a podcast of this material. You can download the presentation. You can print off the study guide. You may have a special prayer need that you wish to share with our prayer partners. Or you may wish to partner with us through a personal donation to help reach this generation with the everlasting good news of Christ. If you'd rather talk with someone, call one of our friendly operators. Here's the toll-free number, 877, and then the two words, His Will. 877, His Will. In the meantime, may the grace and peace of Jesus be yours every step of this adventurous way.